If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Uh, So I'm going to... Just talk a little bit, and then maybe Richard will read a, a small section, oh, yeah. and then um, I hope he does most of the talking because he's smarter than I am. Uh, <laughs> However, this... I've been on tour for two weeks, so I was hoping that Ben <laughs> would do most of the heavy lifting. The Overstory, it's an amazing book. I think I'm here. I reviewed it uh, in The Guardian, and I compared it to Moby Dick, which is sort of fainting with damn praise. Um, and I had a couple things in mind when I made that comparison. One is, to put it in as fancy terms as possible, that Richard Power's work seems to me to negate what T.S. Eliot called the problem with the dissociation of sensibility. I get all my stuff from the Oxford Companion of English Literature. (laughs) So for those of you who want a quick refresher course, he had this argument that in the 17th century, the metaphysical poets had a mechanism of sensibility that could devour any kind of experience. And that seems a a, a beautiful phrase for describing Richard's own work. And after that, you had the separation between thought and feeling. The romantics came in, and they did it differently, not at the same time anymore. And one of the things that's very striking about this book is that mechanism of sensibility that can turn computer games, botany, sociology laws, getting high in college, and make it all part of the same kind of intellectual exercise that's trying to understand the world. The second point of comparison with Moby Dick that, that, that struck me. There, there are a lot of very good novels that bring home to you what it means to live in a human world, that bring home to you what domestic life is like. And some of them will even give you a sense of what it means to move through history. There are far fewer novels, and Moby Dick is one of them, that makes you feel what it is to be alive on a planet, to be a species in a universe. And that is what this book is doing as well. And maybe just, uh, so I shut up. Do you want to read just the opening bit so that they can get a flavor of it? That sounds great. I, I, I always feel, I, I, I can't help remembering uh, Swift's quote uh, whenever I have to read five minutes from a 510-page novel. He said, I knew of a man who was of a mind to sell his house and consequently carried a brick around in his pocket to show as a sample. Uh, I, I was at a loss as to which brick to, re- to show. Uh, I figured if you can't read the first page and a half without a lot of uh, establishment, you're in trouble. So I'll start with this. It's actually not representative of the uh, narrative quality of a lot of the book, although there are, there are multiple narrative qualities in the book. Uh, this is rather a kind of overture 
uh, whose virtue is not so much to establish human character, but to establish from the beginning um, that the non-humans are going to be fairly central to the story. First, there was nothing. Then there was everything. Then, in a park above a western city after dusk, the air is raining messages. A woman sits on the ground, leaning against a pine. Its bark presses hard against her back, as hard as life. Its needles scent the air, and a force hums in the heart of the wood, her ears tuned down to the lowest frequencies. The tree is saying things, in words before words. It says, sun and water are questions endlessly worth answering. It says, a good answer must be reinvented many times from scratch. It says, every piece of earth needs a new way to grip it. There are more ways to branch than any cedar pencil will ever find. A thing can travel everywhere just by holding still. The woman does exactly that. Signals rain down around her like seeds. Talk runs far afield tonight. The bends in the alders speak of long ago disasters. Spikes of pale chinkapin flowers shake down their pollen. Soon, they will turn into spiny fruits. Poplars reap the wind's gossip. Persimmons and walnuts set out their bribes and rowans their blood-red clusters. Ancient oaks wave prophecies of future weather. The several hundred kinds of hawthorn laugh at the single name they're forced to share. Laurels insist that even death is nothing to lose sleep over. Something in the air's scent commands the woman, close your eyes and think of Willow. The weeping you see will be wrong. Picture an acacia thorn. Nothing in your thought will be sharp enough. What hovers right above you? What floats over your head right now? Now. Trees even farther away join in. All the ways you imagined us. Bewitched mangroves up on stilts, a nutmeg's inverted spade, gnarled Baja elephant trunks, the straight-up missile of a sal are always amputations. Your kind never sees us whole. You miss the half of it and more. There's always as much below ground as above. That's the trouble with people, their root problem. Life runs alongside them, unseen, right here, right next creating the soil, cycling water, trading in nutrients, making weather, building atmosphere, feeding and curing and sheltering more kinds of creatures than people know how to count. A chorus of living wood sings to the woman. If your mind were only a slightly greener thing, 
we drown you in meaning. The pine she leans against says, listen, there's something you need to hear. Thank you. I think one of the dangers in, in talking about this book is that I don't think we, I don't want to make it seem like a book of ideas because stuff happens in the book. Do you want to give a brief account of what's going on? I mean, the, the, sure. on a plot level? The, sure. The book involves nine characters, uh, two of them are married, who are introduced sequentially, almost in a, in a series of, of short stories um, in the exposition uh, of, of the book. And they seem to live entirely independent lives with only one thing in common. They are ambushed at some point by trees. Uh, they are made to realize that their life hinges on the lives of trees in ways that they didn't suspect. Uh, as these nine different roots uh, proceed, um, they, uh, five of them come together into a sort of central trunk, which is the story of direct confrontation to, la to, to, to save uh, the last remaining uh, vestiges of old growth forest in North America. So when I was researching the book, I was astonished to discover that of the four immense forests that covered North America, 98% have been cut down. And the, the, the realization on the part of these ordinary, apolitical people that the remaining 2% was on its way to follow uh, creates such a sense of, of disgust and injustice that they actually join this movement in the Pacific Northwest to physically oppose the taking of these, uh, these last bits of Western forest. Their efforts spiral out of control. There's a kind of catastrophic early climax in which uh, uh, their growing w willingness to cross over the, uh, the line and break the law uh, has disastrous effects. Uh, they are exploded uh, into their, uh, back into uh, separate orbits. And the remaining book uh, tells the story of what happens uh, far down the line to the people who uh, survived this incident and are brought to justice. Um, so in a sense, it's a, it's a, it's a classic um, social conflict. You know, it's a, it's a number of people taking the law into their own hands uh, in a very American grain, right? Uh, starting uh, the, the, the kind of um, uh, refusal that I think uh, Thoreau would have been uh, the first to identify as a kind of moral obligation when the law is wrong, it's your duty to oppose it. But uh, I think as Ben hinted at, um, there are other stories in orbit of this central story um, that extend this notion of the interdependence of the humans and the non-humans. They, they intersect the, the, the main trunk uh, in surprising ways, not immediately evident. But the, 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 the upshot is this is a book uh, in which people must share the stage. Uh, humans have to share the stage with non-humans because it's essentially about the interdependence, the imbrication of uh, um, the, pr the private individual life and this huge superstructure of the non-human that makes individual life possible. There's a quote that uh, you're touching on towards the end of the book. 
And I wondered if you saw this as one of the challenges when you were coming up with the plot. One of the characters remembers now why she never had the patience for nature. No drama, no development, no colliding hopes and fears, branching, tangled, messy plots, and she could never keep the characters straight. <laughs> um, and one of the things that struck me, it, it reminded me of an Orwell line when she complains that socialism never produced any great art. I'm not going to, I don't want to get into the, that claim right now. But it's a challenge to environmentalism yeah, to right. produce stories that work on a human level. And did you see that as one of the challenges that that's you were... That's right. I mean, you, you were mentioning some of the, the thematic affinities with Moby yeah. Dick, but there's another too. I have a very visceral memory of being in junior high school and having my beloved teacher, Mrs. Ferlet, outline the various kinds of drama that you can... <laughs> Construct a story around it. Is this sounding? I, just, I don't want to think about junior high, but that's what <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, uh, it's all there in embryo. I'm yes. sorry to uh. say. Um, so you can have an individual person with an irresolvable conflict between two primary values, right? I, I, I believe in honesty above all other things, but I also want to be true to my friend. Right. So you, right. you can build a whole story around right. you know, s somebody who's simply so deeply conflicted that I any choice is wrong. Okay. So I would call that, what, uh, Mrs. Ferlet called it man against himself. You know, um, we would use the less sexist formulation these days, but the psychological novel is primarily about the irresolvable interior tension between irreconcilable values inside an individual person. The sociological novel or the political novel and I just read a spectacular one not too long ago by, by this gentleman. My values are somehow inimical to yours, mm -hmm. right? You believe in liberty and I believe in equality and we're just gonna duke it out. Yeah. And that's the classic uh, man against man, right? There traditionally was a third, and that is man against the elements. Human destiny, human value, pitted against a world that's at best indifferent and probably hostile in many ways to the visions that we have of what our destiny is. You know, you're bringing my junior high back to me. And, <laughs> Sorry. And, 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 and a book I just read to my kids, which I don't know if people read now, but is terrific. It's The Call of the Wild. Mm. And London would be the classic example of this. Yeah. But see, now it's funny that you would mention that book because that's where it starts to disappear from literary fiction in the West, uh -huh. right around that time period, the end of the 19th century. And now when we think about man against the elements, it's a quaint, nostalgic exercise, right? It's, um, right. we've won that battle, it's over, we're the victors. And as a result, I think literary fiction, to some extent, devolves into the psychological and, and, the, and the sociological. And this other notion that somehow we have to be at home on this planet, in, in, you know, on a planet where we aren't Right. It, separate or exclusive or, or independent, that somehow becomes not the proper domain of, of literary fiction. It's a, it's a, but, but what um, Moby Dick and the Call of the Wild have in common is that he, they're fighting animals. That's right. And you're trying to get them to fight trees, which right. is a whole different battleground, I would have thought. It's, it's, right. it's got its own challenges that 
I can imagine that that once London had come up with the plot for the Call of the Wild, right. it was just unfolding beautifully for him. Oh yeah, because it's so yeah. simple. Yeah. Um, but you can't do that with the trees. You have to come up with more. Well, you know, it's funny when I had this um, this religious awakening um, where I realized that I had spent the vast part of my life making a profoundly mistaken assumption about our independence from the rest of the living world and taking for granted uh, the non-human and assuming that it was at, at, at best you know, quaint and at, at, at worst totally irrelevant to any stories that I might tell about myself or people yeah. that I care about. After I had that revelation that no, we are who we are by virtue of these other creatures who we're effectively blind to, I thought, wouldn't it be spectacular to tell a book where the tre trees truly were the central characters yeah. of a novel? There were some technical difficulties with trying to do that. Yeah. There's not a lot of movement. <laughs> They're operating on a somewhat different time frame. Um, so of course, of course, I had to have human intermediaries to, to provide a point yeah. of identification. But the ultimate goal is to extend identification well beyond anything that looks like us and into this other realm. And you know, when I, when I was telling friends and family for the, for the five years that I was writing the book, that I wanted to write a book about you know, where, where trees were, were central dramatic you know, persons, and, and the fight to save trees was the essence of the book, I got this kind of, you know, the eyebrow would go up and, you know, are you sure you want to do this? Um, and yet after a while, I started to think, why, how is it that they're absent entirely right. from our literature? How is it that we, we simply don't recognize that interdependence or that drama as a, as a viable subject matter for literary fiction? And then a little more thought made me realize, actually, you know, for most of, of world literature, for most of the history of world literature, they have been. Yeah. They have been. It's only been in the West in recent, you know, the last yeah. two centuries where they've disappeared. I, I've always been slightly freaked out by the plant model of growth as yeah. opposed to the animal model of growth. Because the thing about plants is they don't stop. Right. And it's like one of those terrible episodes in Star Trek where the thing keeps replicating. And they, and they not only, you know, they have multiple means of reproducing. Right. They have vegetative <laughs> propagation. Yeah. They're just more powerful. I mean, yeah. they just... Um, so I'm gonna, I've got, th just as a, a kind of, uh, to bear out what you're saying about what the book is about, I've got three quotes, Can I, I'll just read them yeah. uh, quickly, that, that sums up some of the argument in it. Billions of years ago, a single fluke, self-copying cell learned how to turn a barren ball of poison gas and volcanic slag into this peopled garden. And everything you hope, fear, and love became possible. You get later, and there's another book that you should probably talk about as a, as a source of it. You and the tree in your backyard come from a common ancestor. A billion and a half years ago, the two of you parted ways. But even now, after an immense journey in separate directions, that tree and you still share a quarter of your genes. And, and just to contextualize those, by the way, those are both passages from a book being written by a woman who actually begins life as a young girl, uh, hard of hearing, consequently um, uh, speech impediment, mocked mercilessly by, by her uh, friends in school, and uh, raised by a father 
who teaches her that if you can't understand people, there is this other kingdom just next door that uh, that that might be that 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 you might have more affinity for. And that's I mean in a way that's that, that was the the problem the question you set yourself as a novelist is the problem that she had to face and it's the problem your characters yes, right. have to face what are we supposed to do with this plant knowledge right um, and here you get the line there are no individuals this is what she comes right. to realize there are no individuals there aren't even separate species everything in the forest is the forest competition is not separable from endless flavors of cooperation um, maybe we can get to this so what are we supposed to do with this knowledge right, <laughs> right. well Here's the thing. The starting point is simple. We have arrived at a point where all of us, and I know this because I, I can see it clearly in myself until the age of 56, where all of us have so deeply assimilated this notion of human autonomy and human exceptionalism and, and this nexus of individualism and commodity culture and anthrocentrism forcing us into this position, we don't even examine it. We simply think there is no meaning except the meaning that I make for myself. That's the state of mind that has produced a planet that's now careening into a new configuration altogether. Two years ago or three years ago, we might still have been talking about let's do something to keep the world habitable for our children and our grandchildren. And now we're increasingly realizing, actually, it's here. It's here now. So, so I mean, that's where we, we have to leave. We have to leave. We have to depart from this belief that somehow we're in charge. We're, you know, we, we have this unique position of mastery and control. Did, did you worry at all about the, the Keats warning that we hate poetry that has a palpable design on us, and if we do not agree, seems to put its hand in its yeah. Pritch's pocket? Sure, and, and the, the realization that this book is not a well-behaved literary book yeah. in terms of trying to humanize all the villains and trying to find flaws in all the heroes and make it morally ambiguous again, because that belief itself, that all literature should, should basically produce an irresolvable moral yeah. ambiguity is itself a, a, a position on that, uh, it, you know, in that uh, nexus of individualism and... and uh, I think that's totally, and it, it's, it's deeply ingrained in me, that belief, right? Yeah. That, that the literature is me not too. supposed to take sides. That, me you, too. that when you play God, you're not supposed to leave your handkerchief on the model, right? It, it, no one should be able, right. to be able to find out what the hell right. you've done here. Right. Um, and that's not the argument of this book. You know, no. it's, it's deliberately not. The danger, of course, is that you can easily slide into nihilism into anti-humanism, and you have characters who... who wait, wait, wait. You could easily slide into anti-humanism, but anti-humanism isn't nihilism. Well, you could do both. Sure, you <laughs> yeah. could. Why choose, yeah. right? But, That's right. Um, no, and, but, and there are I wonder that you have a computer game element in which he's trying right. to reproduce reality, and it's not quite clear from the book whether he's sort of on the side of the botanist right. because he's trying to manipulate code in the way that trees are manipulating right. code, or whether he's just the death star for that kind of thinking. Right, right. Right. So in, in a sense, there remains some degree of ambiguity yes, about yeah. the way out. You're not going to tell us, are you? Well, <laughs> what, what I will say is this. I mean, it, it, it is a book that explores um, the viability or the defensibility of direct action. Yeah. Right. But it's also a book 
whose first step is very small and very modest, and that's there is a form of activism, there is a, there is a form of transformation of consciousness that's going to be an absolute prerequisite for any kind of unblinding, any kind of sensibility of taking the non-human seriously. Taking the non-human seriously is the absolutely prerequisite first step for getting out of the world that we've made, right? Coming back home, accepting the neighbors. That first step is an absolute simple one. When, when, when a reader of this book writes to me and says, I'm not looking at the living world the same way anymore, to me, it started. No, it, I didn't look at the transformation it, started. It, it shifted. I mean, I got to say, I slipped back into the old way. Well, but yeah. um, it did shift because you know, because everything else that you read is the old way. I, I don't think it's just you know. There's the uh, and this book. One of the things that it does is it talks a lot about other books and writers about some of these questions. Right. Thoreau comes into it. Moby right. Dick comes into it. And of course, if you're an American kid, you grow up with the birch tree swinger. You grow up with Robert Frost, right. and he climbs the birch tree, and then he comes back down. Right. And part of his lesson is Earth's the right place for me, and it's not quite the Earth of trees. It's, right. it's the human Earth. And, and against that, the, the Robert Frost, I would put John Muir up at the top of a, of a, of a Douglas fir in, the snow, in, a, in a rainstorm. You know this, right? And, and he's thinking, I'm dead. The wind is blowing, and I'm dead. And then the thought, wait a minute, this tree is 500 years old. It's not happening tonight. Yeah. I'm okay. Right, right, right. So, but, but, the, but, uh, but there is a cost on the human relationships to these right. characters. That, that um, I mean, they, they have human relationships, and one of the things you're incredibly good at is summoning up culture, class, personality, physical appearance in a few lines, because right. you don't have that much time That's to give right. to it. In fact, and, and, in fact, trying to invoke tree time makes it even harder to, yes. to take human time at its, at its ordinary tempo. But the stuff that can happen to them can't happen in human time, really, here. That's I mean, right. the, you know, the, their deaths, their suicides, their things going on, but the kind of the, you know, what Wordsworth called the unimaginable touch of time from a human perspective, right. the, the slow growth or decay of a marriage, that you don't have time to, to do in here. And, and for a lot of people, that kind of human time frame is what they oppose to the sort of eons that you're talking about. So, I mean, you're, you're putting the technical challenges, you know, in a nutshell. It, there's, a, there's a favorite passage that I have where this, this woman, uh, um, the botanist, who actually makes critical early discoveries about the ability of trees to signal each other over the air, to communicate, um, to share an immune system, and then is, is, is laughed out of a of, of a male-dominated uh, discipline that um, can't accept this notion that cooperation might play at least as important a role as competition. She's, been, she's driven out of the field and uh, spends many years as an outsider, is vindicated and comes back, and at the end of the book is asked to deliver a fairly cataclysmic uh, uh, speech for an environmental conference. And I won't tell you, you know, what that hinges on, but I will say she begins with, a, with an image of a Noah's Ark, a painting of Noah's Ark. Uh, she says, you know, isn't it, isn't it odd in this story that he's given the command to entirely ignore the primary producers and save only the freeloaders, right? That's the challenge of the book. Yeah. How to make the pri primary producers seem like a, some, yeah. some story that we can identify with and take seriously. How to reanimate the world, how to, how to propel 
a consciousness that's, that's only capable of identifying with something that looks very much like it into this other state that we've had in the past and we need to recuperate. You make the case very strongly in the book. And you know, one of the things I try to tell students when I teach is that writers are usually trying to sell you a worldview. And the worldview is not, can you get an A on this test? <laughs> they really, you know, writers are self-important enough that when they sit down to produce their book, part of what they're thinking is you have to change the way you're living. And that's the argument I'm trying to make to you, even if you won't be able to work out how you're supposed to change it. But you're making that argument too. And you were saying to me, that this book had that effect on you. You weren't, you weren't fucking around. Well, yeah. I mean, the book literally changed my life in, in many ways, but one very specific one. I was, I was living in California and teaching at Stanford when I had this, this revelatory moment about writing, taking the non-human seriously. I'm not proud to say it took an old growth redwood to make the scales fall from my eyes. I mean, you don't need a particularly sensitive soul to be stirred by something that's, you know, as wide as a house and as long as a football pitch and, and as old as Jesus, you know, I mean, that's going to make a statement to you. But after I decided to embark on this story, I, you know, and, and I had this, I, I came across this figure about how few old growth acres there are left in North America and how no human being has ever lived to see a, a clear cut forest return to the complexity and diversity of an old growth forest. And there's no, there's no necessary proof that they will. I wanted to see old growth forest. And I kept reading that if you want to know what an Eastern forest looked like before the Europeans came, one of the best places to go is the Smoky Mountains in Southeastern US. I thought I knew what an Eastern forest looked like. I'd grown up in the Midwest and I'd spent most of my time you know, in the Eastern part of the US. Four years ago, I went on a research trip to the Smokies to see what an uncut forest looked like, and I realized I'd never seen a healthy forest. I'd never seen an intact, fully functioning forest. And you don't have to be a dendrologist, dendrologist to, to, to notice. When you walk up into these areas, they look different, they smell different, they sound different. You can see a vitality and a diversity even without being able to name the species, there's a fecundity, a teeming quality to old growth that you just don't see in a regrowth forest. Eight months after making that research trip, the image of that place was still in my head. And I just, I just couldn't get away from it. And I went back and I bought a house and I've been living there ever since. So not only, I mean... You don't miss Stanford? Not Stanford, not in... I'm, a, I'm Stanford in, born, by the way. Just to... <laughs> <laughs> okay. I do miss some people from Stanford. I have a former student here tonight. I can't believe it. When did we see each other last? Four and a half years ago. Oh my goodness, yeah. Well, so many, many wonderful things came out of Stanford. The idea for the book came out of Stanford. But Silicon Valley is not my idea of uh, uh, the future that we need. Although, I have to say, a lot of the book is devoted to this notion that whatever reintegration we do make, whatever homecoming yeah. we do make, we're not going there without the tools that we've created. And in fact, those tools themselves may be instrumental for, com for coming to speak the language of the rest of the living world. That's where the computer program that's that's right. comes in. I mean, the, the, the book, had, you know, Walden, I don't know how many of you have read Walden here. Walden must have been important to this book when you were... Are, yeah. 
it's it, in it, it is the progenitor text for for what I'm setting out to do. But you know, he, here's the thing about Walden, right? He's living in a regrowth forest, right? <laughs> and well, I mean, well, that, that reminds me a little bit though of when. Um, Robert Graves and Siegfried Sassoon used to come back from the front and they would complain that other people hadn't really been at the front front right. like you. Right, that's um, right. Yeah. But remember the opening lines of the, of the book. Do you, do you remember it? Uh, when I wrote the following words, I was living in a, a cabin, a hut, which I built myself right. on the shores of Walden Pond. Right. How was it going? I went to the woods yeah. to live deliberately. Right? Not to get back to nature. Right? And not to revive some nostalgic agrarian fantasy. I went to the woods to live deliberately. And you say, what's, what's the way forward? To, to me, Thoreau has the answer. He's saying, simply attend. You know, the, there's another great, where, uh, the passage where he says, um, live in each season as it passes. Mm -hmm. Breathe the air, drink the drink, eat the fruit, resign yourself to the influence of the earth. It's an incredible book, but he does also say at the end of that first par paragraph, um, I lived there two years and two months. At present, I'm a sojourner in civilized life again. Right. And one of the things that always frustrates me about that book is that it should really be the story of how he comes back to civilized you, you'd life. You'd like to hear, yeah. Uh, that's what yeah. I would like to hear. Yeah, and I mean, it does, does attentiveness, does resigning yourself to the influence of the earth require separation and, and right. uh, com complete uh, solitude. Or once, once we're back you know, uh, in, the, in the thick of sharing a consciousness with everybody we bump up against, is it impossible to hold on to that? Is it impossible? I to don't think you want us all joining you in your woods, right? If we all, if we all made the trek, flights are cheap now. <laughs> but but again, you wouldn't, right? Would, you, wouldn't. I, you know, I, what I want to see is not everyone living in the woods. I want to see a sane agricultural system. Yeah. You know, I want to see a way of life that doesn't externalize all its costs, that actually believes that the things that we do are part of reciprocal and renewed systems. That's all. I mean, it's not about running away to the forest. No, and also you make very clear the forest isn't the place of escape. The, the forest is where the action is. That's, that's right. Kind of, that's right. Um, but the forest is also the archive. It's right. also, I mean, if we lose it, we lose an understanding of the complexity and the reciprocity and the, and the um, reciprocal interdependence that is now being replaced by monocultures. Have you had regrets in the woods? Have you had, have you thought twice? I mean, is it? About living there? Yeah. At the moment, you know, after, after two weeks in, in France and Belgium <laughs> and, and now the UK, I, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm waiting to get yes. my feet back on the ground. But regrets about living in the woods, yes, because while, while it was a necessary place for me, I think it's what you just said about Thoreau. Well, it has been a necessary place for me yeah. to be unblinded and to see what it is that I've internalized and what needs to change in my own way of thinking. I'm not with people. So I don't yet know how to come back into the world and how to, you know. What how do you have? Do you have internet there? Do you have... Of a okay. sort, yeah. Of a sort. I mean, because I think for a lot of us, part of what we're talking about is actually just the distraction that comes from you know. And we were talking about Bello earlier. His right. big theme late in life was distraction. Yeah. We're being distracted from what matters. Yeah. He didn't think what mattered was. No, the it's woods the, the same way. It's the rose theme too. Yes. Isn't it? Right. Um, and so some of that. I mean, do you have the distractions there, or have you managed to clear your your mind of those too? 
they exist. Yeah. Um, I have to say I'm protected somewhat by how pathetic the bandwidth is. <laughs> so it's so bad that it doesn't provide a, anywhere near as interesting a distraction as, say, you know, go, going down and, and uh, discovering another few species of fungus. Yeah. There are 3,000 species of fungus uh, uh, in my backyard. So there's always something happening on any day of the year that's much more interesting uh, than, than waiting for the next episode of the Trump show. Yes. Right. Yes. Should, we, should, should I ask some, ask some questions? Or yeah, we can throw it open. You talked about the, the challenge that literary fiction uh, has of uh, attending to the non-human and understanding uh, something beyond what looks like us, attending to the interdependence of life. And I wondered what you thought about other literary forms, particularly poetry. It seems to me to be that this problem seems a specifically a problem of the novel. The novel grew up alongside human consciousness. And you might even want to qualify that more. The, the, the commercially viable novel in Western countries. Yeah. So, well, the point is, is well made, and I'm not sure how much more I can add to it. But because because the medium of poetry is so deeply ingrained in the notion of attention to begin with and a, a, a different relationship to time and present presence, I think it does, it does maintain, it does continue to interrogate human exceptionalism in, in ways that, you know, a certain kind of Western belles lettres literature doesn't. Yeah, so, no, that's a good point. Poetry doesn't have to plot, though, in the same way. In a way, the challenge that you're really talking about right. is to incorporate plot. Right. And, and it's interesting to write a book where plot begins as a seduction, but actually did seduce me as well. My, my initial sense that somehow this was just a way to expand capacity for identification I began to realize, no, it also, the, the resolution of the drama has a lot to do with the, the, the viability of the thematic conclusions as well. Um, I love your book. Oh, bless um, you. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a similar point. I suppose you were very specific about literary fiction, but I'm thinking about fantasy and science fiction. Right. And when right. you were talking, I, and when I was reading the book, I was thinking a lot about J.R.R. Tolkien yes. because of his connection with trees, specifically. I was thinking a lot about Tolkien when I was writing it, <laughs> yeah. particularly the Ents, right? Yes, but also, I mean, he thought of himself as a tree. Yeah, but, oh, yeah, that's right. But you, you mentioned something else, too. When I said this notion of people against the environment, or the destiny of mankind thought against the destiny of a planet or the destiny of various ecosystems, there is a genre that is very willing to take the non-human seriously and to collide the human with the non-human in very interesting and provocative ways, and that's science fiction. Yeah, no question. But then that raises the question of why science fiction has never had the cachet that, li that literary fiction does. And maybe it's in part because of that, right, that willingness. They get their movies, though. The science fiction. Yes. Well, and and uh, cachet is great. Money better. <laughs> but but that's an interesting thing too. And I, I got this from uh, this series of Gary Wolf lectures on how science fiction works. He says science fiction is really two different things. There's a there's a very small recherche esoteric uh, community uh, clientele. You know, people who really want to delve into science fiction on the page. And then there are these masses of audiences who want to engage science fiction on, on film. 
but those two endeavors are very, very different. The science fiction on the page is often about interrogating, you know, co covert impulses that, you know, that we have about human destiny. Science fiction on film is about power and mastery and control. I thought the opening was very stunning, actually. I bought your book about one o'clock today. I was listening to a podcast by Diana Beresford Kroger and oh, with yes. you and her. Yeah. And I ended up in Foyle's bookshop in South Bank and I asked for your book and somebody who's behind me who's come in here. Yeah. <laughs> and he handed me the book. But um, And then when I heard your... Inter just the way you, what you read today, I'm so excited by it because I love trees. Um, I feel the green spaces and trees and what they offer to us, both in nature and in urban cities. Yes, yes. Um, I, you know, I have trees that I've adopted that have seen me through some very difficult times. So, you know, just hearing about your book for me is really, really, um, I have a lot of hope and I'm sort of encouraging myself to get my book finished as well, which is a, I've got a huge amount of tree stories that have come through my lineage and just experiences. So I felt it was really, really important. So I was really glad that I came today. And I was struck by the fact that you've written a book of fiction and not nonfiction, which is there are right. a lot of books now about forest bathing. There's a lot of books that like it's all the rage. The Diana Beresford Kroger has written yes, global, yeah, yeah, two. Well, she's yeah. got two books on right. trees. So I was wondering about did you have a did you have a thought about whether it should have been nonfiction or fiction? And then the second question is, okay, we're, you're talking about the forest, and you know, I'm like thinking, how can I get down to you know where you are just to see those forests for myself before you know we don't you know we've all got a limited time, right. but most of us live in urban environments. Right. Right. And so I know how I connect right. to the trees and nature, but what would your message be? You know, for, first of all, you know, bless you for your good words, and it's enormously encouraging uh, and, and to, to hear that, that this is a topic that you also compels you as a writer is very moving for me to hear. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that the, that the opening sounded because all I could hear was how much fun they're having over <laughs> over there and I want to be at that party uh, so I'm glad I'm glad that uh, something of, of, of the um, uh, of another uh, uh, register and and uh, tempo uh, was able to hold its own against against the human I don't know you've you've asked so many interesting questions I mean I would say this it was a long act of practicing a different kind of tempo before I could hear um, the ways that those voices and human voices might be able to talk to each other. I, I think your point about um, urban forestry is super important. I mean, if we are to challenge this notion of human exceptionalism, if we're to say, actually, we are, have never been and are not now separate from this invention called nature, also there has, if we accept that, then we also have to accept the, the, the complementary observation, which is there has never really been wilderness. We have been shaping the forest forever. To take the non-human seriously is to take the trees in a city seriously, is to take the city seriously as an incredibly complicated biological system 
So once again, it's just another way of saying, this is not a book that's steeped in a kind of a nostalgic separatism, a kind of return to a pre-technological uh, independent state, just the opposite. It's a story about attending to what is there in front of us and to seeing it as a, as a complex living system that we are a part of and that we have to take seriously and that we cannot understand ourselves without doing so. That self-knowledge requires realizing that the environments that we've built and the environments that have shaped us are not to be trivialized or, or ignored or treated as if they're independent from this other question of self-making. There is no self-making. There are no individual trees in the forest. Right. So that reminds me of a Michael Jordan story. Oh, wonderful. When, when he, people complained, uh, one of his coaches once said to him, there's no I in team. And he said, yes, but there is a me. <laughs> thank you for writing the book. And thank you for coming. As you said, there's, there's nine characters in the book. And I just wondered, um, there are probably many more that you wanted to put in the book. Sure. And I just wondered if you could tell us about one that you left out, um, or one or two that you left out, just to keep it down to the 500 pages. Right. There, there were characters who I could imagine as being central protagonists who had to shrink down to supporting roles. And in particular, three fathers, right? The, the agricultural field extension agent who raises plant patty, who raises the little, the, the, the hard of hearing and hard, you know, the uh, speech impediment girl, who I pictured as, as an almost, um, a jovial version of Thoreau himself, you know, um, somewhat resigned about human blindness, determined to do his work, a, a good father, but whose destiny in the story is cut short prematurely. I, it was hard for me not to think of alternate possibilities for him moving forward into the story. The, the father of the computer programmer, the South Asian, um, the first generation South Asian uh, in Silicon Valley, whose father comes from Gujarat to, to uh, participate in the creation of the first microprocessors. Again, another well-meaning and kind-hearted person who ends up in the Golden State in what was once called the Valley of Heart's Delight, is now called Silicon Valley, a bewildered soul. But see this, you know, what, what, I, what I was coming up against so often in the book, again and again, was this notion of bewilderment, of human bewilderment. It doesn't just mean confusion. It also means, in the etymological sense, becoming wild again, becoming part of a complex system. Yeah. Not all the characters quite make it through to the crux in the same way. No, the, they don't. And it was, were you aware of who was going to survive to the climax when you started, or was there a weird kind of testing going on or sifting? There, I think we always write our way toward figuring out what happens, and, and oftentimes the first drafts are very misguided. Yeah. You have destinies for people that you realize they can't achieve. And I was actually kind of shocked by the, the death of one of, these, um, one of these protagonists who almost seems invulnerable because of a prior brush with death that has survived. Yeah. And, you know, I think when, when readers tell me how, how stunned they were yes. by the curtailment of their life, I, you know, it's, it has to be because I was also blindsided by it. But she also becomes more central 
than I would have thought, given the background story. After her death. After, even before. I mean, yeah. that's just... That, nice. We're, so, we're sorry, pussyfooting we're, around this because we don't want to do any big reveals here or any big giveaways. I'm taking your lead on that one. That was the... Yeah. I was really glad to hear you talk about science fiction because I'm one of those people that are always complaining that, you know, science fiction readers, it's a ghetto and then right. you get the really bad Hollywood science fiction. Right. And I'm also part of the problem because I want desperately to see science fiction on the big screen. So right. I'll go and watch the bad Hollywood right. science fiction, even though I'm not happy with it. Right. But I, I think I read, I think you were interviewing The Guardian and you mentioned something about kind of that interest carrying over and you working on a kind of more science fictional mode for the next book. And I was wondering if you could say something about that and also... I don't know if you've read any Kim Stanley Robinson, but the overstory yeah. reminded me a lot of his, his really good moments when he kind of goes into this whole kind of, what do we do about the fact that we have to live with nature, right? but by default, the minute we encounter it, we start degrading it, right. which is the whole Thoreau problem too, that the minute that he goes into the wilderness, it's That's no right. longer wilderness, That's he's right. there. That's right. Robinson, I, I, would, I would put his name among those writers who have engaged this question of human destiny most robustly in, 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 in many, many interesting ways. I had the great fortune of, of meeting him on a couple of occasions. He's become a friend and we have a long and sustaining correspondence. He actually read my book in manuscript and was quite useful. And the two of us actually collaborated on a musical cantata about trees and people um, in preparing texts for what ended up being a collaboration between multiple composers about forest themes. The idea being that this myth of the solitary creator was very much in, you know, in this uh, mode of human exceptionalism and individualism and autonomy and you know, commodity culture. And what we want to do you know, in, in, in working on uh, forest themes uh, we wanted to create basically a reciprocity and interdependence of multiple makers. So there were four writers, and I was one, and Robinson was one. Uh, Joan Maloof, who's who's written a lot on on forests as as well. Um, yeah, another good touch touch point. And uh, Bill McKibben uh, were the ones who prepared the written texts, and then we had four composers who shared their manuscripts and uh, created a continuous uh, work. Um, both you know, um, with their own uh, fingerprints on it, but also with a different spirit of collaboration. Uh, and Robinson actually selected uh, for his passages, uh, passages from the Thoreau notebooks. Uh -huh. Yeah, so this, the circle uh, comes back in many interesting ways. So yes, yeah, that's a, he's a great, great person to start with for, the, for these broad questions of how, how how do we get to know the neighbors? How do we come back home? But not, not in a, a backward-looking way, not in a, in a pre-technological way. H how do we continue to, you know, to, to bring this astonishing transformation by other non-human elements, right? Our, our own prosthetics. Is it possible to use these prosthetics to, for the first time, get to the heart of the huge complex languages that the non-human world is using to talk to and create and depend on each other. Hi, um, again I loved this, the overstory so much um, and I was just wondering your thoughts on you know, the post-apocalyptic genre and how that's a warning for yeah. looking at the environment yeah. and I, well, you didn't go obviously down that road in this book, is that because you thought it would bring more immediacy if it was you know, real life? 
more, you know, yeah. in real life. You know, I, I can't say that I'm, I'm particularly well-read in the post-apocalyptic genre, but I, I do think that people are trying out lots of different things. For instance, there are super interesting treatments of post-apocalyptic culture where um, reintegration does occur. It's not just Mad Max, you know, people running around trying to preserve the last vestiges of commodity culture, you know. I mean, I think, I think there are great writers, Le Guin is one, right, who, who, who says, wait, these, these may be the opportunities for a complete rethinking of, of where consciousness fits into the living world. And, you know, just, just to touch base with this character who we were talking about earlier, too, who electrocutes herself, dies, and a minute and a half later comes back to life hearing voices. The thing that the voices are telling her is the most astonishing creation of four and a half billion years of evolution needs your help. And throughout the whole course of the book, you think she's saying, you think the voices are saying, go save the trees. By the end of the book, the realization is actually they don't need our help. They've been around for 400 million years and they've survived many mass extinctions. There is another creature, the most astonishing creation of four and a half billion years of evolution that does need our help. And that's us. I think that's a good note to end on. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.